Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, as we approach the end of the school year, everyone starts thinking about those yearbooks. And it's a topic that I've actually been interested in from a socio-photographic point of view for several years, if you will. Did, did you ever work on the yearbook staff? I didn't, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, Too cool. Too cool for the yearbook staff. <laughs> Well, for many seniors, their yearbook page is a way to memorialize their high school selves. And every year we see some kids trying to sneak in some stuff. Back in my day, it was oblique references to alcohol or marijuana. And we've also seen racist symbols and gestures. And just this past week in Bartram Trail High School in St. John's, Florida, another controversy. This time, a female yearbook teacher photoshopped more material onto at least 80 female students to cover up their chests. What was your reaction? Woof. Oh my gosh. Um, I, well, okay. I need to preface this with, I have such a deep, deep hatred for dress codes. <laughs> um, I mean, because they're a form of control, right? And they're generally sexist. I mean, I got sent to the principal's office in seventh grade because I had frayed pants. Oh my God. <laughs> I want I know. I wanted them cut. I thought it was cool. I was cool. (laughs) Um, The cut reported that this school uh, is notorious for their super strict dress code. And while the parents are quoted, you know, in the times of of the students who got photoshopped um, and the local news saying that the intent of the photoshopping was to embarrass and and shame the students uh, of their bodies. First of all, yes, definitely. Yes. Um, But I think it's also important to note how altering these images is just another form of control over these young girls. And this is a really sad life lesson for them at such a young age, you know, is that you don't have control or say over your body or how it's represented when it's published. And I, you know, I kind of, I really hate to go here, but my mind immediately went to the horrificness of revenge porn and how women Mm. so often have their bodies used and weaponized against them. You know, even famous women who have money to get legal protection, they don't have control or say over their own image. And so I think by altering these young girls' photos without their consent and the photoshopping being a commentary on their body, um, they've learned this really unfortunate and messed up lesson from their school nonetheless. And I just really worry about the ramifications of that on the entire student body, both male and female and non-binary, everyone. It's a really, it's, it's bad. <laughs> the New York Times reported on the issue and uh, they interviewed a student, a ninth grader, Riley O'Keefe. She said... They need to recognize that it's making girls feel ashamed of your of their bodies, as you, you pointed out. The article also mentions that no pictures of male students, including one of the swim team in which the boys wore Speedo bathing suits, were digitally altered. So, hmm. to, again, to your point, the, the uneven application of these dress code-related issues, it, they, they always come up as disproportionately affecting females, usually disproportionately affecting females who go through adolescence before others, disproportionately mm-hmm. uh, affecting females who are curvy, right? The, literally, mm-hmm. you could wear the same shirt, um, but if you have butt and breasts, then you're sent to the principal, whereas the skinnier, flat-chested person is not sent. 
And, right. and you know, the Speedo issue as well. It's like water polo teams all over the country have photos with Speedos and there's never an attempt to cover those up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I did think a lot about what you mentioned in terms of the weaponization of photography. Uh, you might recall that I wrote a blog post many, many years ago about the, the photo as weapon. Uh, and I talked about uh, revenge porn and mugshot images. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to think of the weaponization as being these really extreme examples where mm. photos of suicide or murder get uploaded. But this is very much a form of control and conformity, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's crazy, well, maybe not so crazy, that a female teacher felt so puritanical about the issue. Yeah. You know, I looked at these photos. Are, is there cleavage visible in the photos? Yes, but... Is it anywhere remotely scandalous in in my opinion? Not even close. Not even close. Not even close. Right. right. It, it's just a part of a body. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the parents also said, the kids are doing great in school. Why, why are you trying to impose this force of control? Like if they were failing out of school and you're trying to create some sort of incentive for them to do better in school because you knew that kids who perform better in school often get better paying jobs and that sets them up for a better quality of life, right? If we're going to go completely longitudinal on this. But this seemed sort of vindictive. <laughs> and I, I kind of wonder what went, went on in that, that teacher's life that made her think like, oh, I have to literally Photoshop uh, a black strip over this, this girl's chest yeah. to hide it. And then there was a ridiculous one. I don't know if you saw this one of, of a plaid shirt where she did a terrible <laughs> Photoshop job. Just looks like a triangle of plaid over this, this girl's chest. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like some of the Photoshopping is just really bad, just yeah. point blank bad. <laughs> so I was researching it because I, I remember hearing about this. It, it happens every couple of years, right? You hear another yearbook scandal. It happened in 2015 in Vermont where a photo was rejected for too much cleavage. It happened in 2014 in Utah. Another big event happened in 2008 near Dallas. There was a 2014 op-ed by an opinion columnist named Kathy Archer from the Herald Journal in response to that Utah incident. Uh, And the piece is entitled, Dress Codes Necessary But Don't Alter Yearbook Photos. We'll have that link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com along with all of the other articles that we're mentioning. She says in that piece, My problem, you see, is that I think the whole purpose of a yearbook is to have a memory book of us just the way we were. I'd be livid if someone were to go into my senior yearbook and get rid of my beehive-shaped blonde updo with big barrel curls. And I won't even go into details about the expectation in my era that every senior girl would pull down her bra straps to be photographed in a fake fur shawl that bare just a (laughs) bit of her shoulders. The senior boys just wore suits. Mm. So yeah, there's like a weird... Double standard. I also like her take that it's just a moment in time, mm-hmm. right? And if we sanitize this and then, you know, looking back on it in, in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, like, what does it say about us as a society that, that we couldn't even capture ourselves as our authentic self back during these different moments of our life? It's unfortunate that, you know, the other thing I, I thought about, though, is... The news and the way that the media is structured, at least some parts of the media, is to be an outrage machine. So you see something like this and you're like, 80 students, oh my God, well, the world is out of control. And you get all of these <laughs> articles written in all these different media outlets. And probably rightfully so, right? This school is not, it doesn't sound like they know what they're doing. Right. Um, 
But I would also say, you know, of all the yearbooks that are published throughout the year, and there, there are thousands of them, this is the one that came to the forefront in 2021. We didn't hear of this in 2020, 2019. So I think uh, as a function of the number of yearbooks produced, these issues fortunately seem to be fairly localized and fairly rare. So I just want to, you know, make sure we remain level-headed about the way we analyze the situation. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, it is strange that, you know, New York Magazine had an article about this, I guess, about this school in Florida. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, I of course, I read it. I clicked on it. I wanted to see, you know. So it got me curious about where did the yearbook come from? At least, you know, the pictorial representation mm. with the portraits. Yeah. So I started digging around. There was a an article in The Atlantic and an article on NPR from a few years ago. And apparently there was a portraitist working out of the Northeast named George Kendall Warren. Now, we've talked extensively about the daguerreotypes uh, in the past few episodes because we talked about the Zeely daguerreotypes of the slaves. Um, but, you know, the daguerreotype as a technology had sort of a limited run, kind of a 20-year run approximately where it was popular. But it was so mechanically intense because you had to paint on the, the light-sensitive chemical and develop it on the spot, and you had a metal substrate. And finally, when paper became a, a medium for uh, capturing images, the daguerreotype went out of style, and Kendall pivoted towards paper, and he realized that he could take senior portraits on paper. Oh. And so he was hired to do the 1860 yearbook for Rutgers University, <laughs> which was allegedly the first yearbook featuring portraits taken by Warren. Wow. Wow. Um, 1860. Yeah, isn't that oh my nuts? God. There yeah. were only, and, you know, I think of Rutgers now in New Jersey. It's a big school. Um, well, in that graduating class, there were only 28 students. 28. <laughs> and they did Bunch say, of dummies. you know, the, the Civil War started in 1861, and they did say that there were a lot of tensions expressed in that yearbook between people that were sort of pro-North, pro-South. Oh, my god! So really interesting from, a, again, from a historical and sociological point of view. Yeah. I mean, what would have happened if they had sanitized their quotes? You yeah, know, like yeah. that's, that's important history right there. And then, so that was 1860 at, at Rutgers. In, 18, in the 1880s, the modern yearbook, what I think most people think of as a yearbook, um, was born in part because of advances in printing technology. So the halftone printing process where you can uh, vary the size of dots on the page. So everyone who knows newspaper printing is familiar with this, but the size of the dot simulates kind of a grayscale, if you will. So the mass production um, of the halftone printing process and the availability of printing presses made the yearbooks with photos in them economically feasible. So again, pretty interesting that that kind of spun out. And in the early to mid 20th century, you see companies like Jostens or LifeTouch starting to you know, get into the industrial complex of, of yearbooks. But for years and years and years, schools have been dealing with reissuing yearbooks after racist photos appear, you know, people in blackface, inappropriate mm -hmm. quotes. And there was actually a study done, and there's an article that I came across in USA Today, where scientists, social scientists looked at uh, yearbooks through the 70s and 80s. And they found, and this is from the article, throughout the 70s and 80s, a stunning number of colleges and university yearbooks published images of blatant racism on campus. 
the USA Today Network found in a review of 900 publications at 120 schools across the country. So controversy around yearbooks and people trying to get away with things that they probably shouldn't have gotten away with. You know, once a photo is introduced, uh, there's something, again, about the literalness about a photo that makes it much more um, impactful than a drawing, for example, right? Mm. If it was a drawing uh, of, of, a, of a woman's bust, it's not quite the same thing as painting a black bar over a, a portrait of, a, of, of the said student. So really, really quite fascinating. What, was your yearbook, was any of it in color or was it all black and white? Mine was all black and white, but my understanding is that over the years, now the seniors get color pages. Yeah. Right? And I think that's mm. fairly common. The cost, obviously, with color is more expensive, but they're, they're splurging on the seniors. So. Yeah. In mid-2000s, that's how it was at my school. You finally got to be a senior and your picture got to be in color. And it was a special, special day. <laughs> the, you know, the other aspect of yearbooks is that a lot of schools have contracts with like one photographer. So mm. there's only one approved vendor to take all the senior portraits or one or two. And so you get this really uniform, old school look to a lot of these photos. And they don't have a, they don't have a good way to allow kids to sort of express themselves. And you would think with digital photography, there's a lot of kids who really love and are good at portraiture. And why can't they take their own senior, official senior portrait and, and submit those? So a lot of weird political, logistical, bureaucratic issues with photos that appear in your book. So it's, it's something to keep your eye on. Absolutely. So a few months ago, we discussed on the show this trend that we were seeing on Twitter of users noticing that the automatic crop of their photos on the platform was favoring white faces to pretty much everything, <laughs> um, m more specifically to other people of color. Um, and we specifically mentioned Twitter user Tony Arcieri, who had uploaded a vertical sort of photo booth-like image of Mitch McConnell and Barack Obama. And the algorithm always showed Mitch's face, no matter if he flip-flopped the image or not, until he literally inverted the colors. Um, so... According to a new blog post published by Twitter, Twitter took the tweets and the complaints seriously, and they had their software engineers figure out what the hell was going on. And this week, they published a study of the image cropping algorithm that looked at and tested their algorithm for gender and race-based biases. And they found that the Twitter users were basically correct. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about the results of that? It was a pretty interesting article. I didn't read the study, but I wrote the article that was uh, about the study. So they previously had been using what's known as a saliency algorithm, which works to estimate what a person might want to see in their first picture based on training data. So it is a, quote, artificial intelligence machine learning based model. It's trained to react to how the human eye would look at a picture. But of course, if your data is bunk, and junk, then the mm -hmm. algorithm is going to be bunk and junk, right? Right. The algorithm, it says in this article, trained on human eye tracking data, predicts a saliency score on all regions of the image. We considered the trade-offs between the speed and consistency of automated cropping with the potential risks we saw in this research. One of our conclusions is that not everything on Twitter is a good candidate for an algorithm. And in this case, mm. how to crop an image 
is a decision best made by people. I love this finding. I love this finding because it's just wild to me that they've figured that out in 2021. <laughs> like what, what have photo editors, professional photo editors at newspapers been doing for years and years? <laughs> you know what point. I mean? That's a good point. So <laughs> these scientists over at Twitter, they, they use a data set in this new study comprised of 10,000 images. They didn't disclose uh, in this article what the data set was nor what types of images were included. I should probably read the paper to see if it's in, in there. But a lot of these machine learning-based algorithms use the same data sets. We've talked about data sets built from Flickr imagery before. Um, so again, it's only as good as the data that you're putting in. The study found in a comparison of black and white individuals, there was a 4% difference from demographic parity in favor of white individuals. Hmm, 4%. What does that mean a 4% difference. So let's say you look at uh, 100 images that includes a black person and a white person, 56% of those will crop out the white person as the preview image, right? I see. So now the way that it seems when the tweets initially came out a few months ago, it seemed like it was a much bigger problem. Yeah. So I think it's interesting, number one, to see that in this particular study, it's a much smaller problem than I think a lot of people thought. But again, we have to be able to look at what data set was used in order to really understand what's going on. So I'm not trying to downplay the problem, the initial problem of bias in the algorithm, nor the need for a solution. But assuming that that data set of 10,000 images is pretty uh, exemplary of photos out in the wild, it's not as big a problem as a few of the, the isolated viral examples made it out to be. So in March, you might remember this announcement. They said, we began testing a new way to display standard aspect ratio photos in full on iOS and Android, meaning without the saliency algorithm crop. The goal of this was to give people more control over how their images appear while also improving the experience of people seeing their images on the timeline. So the product decision to show vertical photos was at least in part influenced by trying to eliminate the need for the saliency algorithm. And now mm. when you do a, a tweet with a photo, they show you what the actual preview is going to look like. So they're right. giving users control, which is a fantastic outcome. If nothing else, allowing the user to determine what the salient part of the photo is rather than relying on an algorithm. I think it's, it's really the best outcome. And it's, it's sort of astonishing the, the amount of transparency that they had around this particular issue. I mean, in this particular instance, hats off to Twitter. Yeah, I totally agree. And at the end of the day, they created this new feature where you're able to tweet out your full vertical image. And I think photographers love that. I yeah. mean, we all hate the Instagram vertical crop. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, hats off to Twitter and how they handled this issue. As you know, I'm a big music lover. I studied music in college. Uh, sometime during the pandemic last year in 2020, I came across a track by the 1980s Japanese pop star Maria Takeuchi, her song Plastic Love, for whatever reason, went viral on YouTube. And uh, along with that video that was uploaded by the YouTube user Plastic Love was a portrait taken by... Alan Levinson, who was an L.A.-based portrait photographer, big in the 80s and 90s, did a lot of work with record companies. It was a black and white portrait of Takeuchi that was the image for the entire uh, song that was uploaded to YouTube. Now, first of all, 
this song, Plastic Love, total jam. What a jam. Total jam. What a jam. I hope you can play like a sliver of it for us because... Well, let's try to sneak in just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) According to Wikipedia, the popularity of this re-upload from 2017 corresponded with a rise in popularity of this genre of music called Vaporwave. Never heard of it. Vaporwave. Yeah. Apparently some weird combination (laughs) of electronic music and meme culture. So it seems like perfect for the internet, right? Yes. Levinson got an email from Sony in 2018 about the photo because it was Takeuchi's 40th anniversary of being an artist. When he Googled for the photo, he came across this YouTube video and he's like, look, what? That's my photo and there's millions of views. So he (laughs) retroactively registered the copyright. Why didn't you copyright it before? And then he did a a takedown notice on YouTube because his lawyer's like, well, that's your photo and they're probably making money off of it. So do a takedown notice. Right. And now Sony wants to use it (laughs) for this like new. Yeah. Okay. So there's an article on Pitchfork. They're interviewing Plastic Lover, the YouTube user and Alan Levinson. And Alan Levinson notes the moment that he put this takedown notice, he says immediately insane amounts of hate mail started rolling in tons of anti-Semitic stuff that I've never experienced in my life, which is like the worst part of the internet, right? Literally, yeah. But he also comments in this article, everyone was basically telling me the photo was nothing, but I knew the photo wasn't nothing. People love it. That's a perfect kismet between the song, Plastic Love, and his photo. And Mm -hmm. he, he very astutely points out, YouTube is a thumbnail operation. Everyone Mm -hmm. questions the algorithm, but my feeling is that people looked at the photo and saw something about it. I think it's a great photo, and I don't say that about all my photos. Alan uh, Alan Levinson, you're so right. You hit the nail on the head with this. I mean, I I love this quote. There's a lot of, uh, you know, tutorials about creating the perfect thumbnail to get engagement, but people are so dependent on that recommendations thing that happens over on the right of your screen. And I Mm -hmm. totally agree with him. You have the right image and people are going to click on it. Totally. The little turn in the story is that he got all these complaints anti-Semitic comments. And then he says in this article, I found out that Plastic Lover was not making any money. I assume because Sony was the owner and they were the ones that could monetize it, not Plastic Lover, the user. And he says people were upset that he did the takedown notice. Eventually I said, what the heck? I don't care. Just put my name on it and I will take off the strike, the copyright strike. We were happy to see it reinstated exactly with all of the comments intact. Hmm. So yes, and and the views, yeah. yeah, the amount of views that it had racked up. I mean, I think it's really cool for Takeuchi to have this like runaway hit in 2020 from a song that she made in 1980s. I think it's great that Levinson is getting recognized, and you know, there's a copyright notice on the thumbnail now. Uh, mm. I do think that he should be paid, but you know, he made the decision yeah, but that by who, yeah. By who do you think he should be paid? Well, I think if the label is monetizing the views because the label mm-hmm. controls the copyright, then pay him something for the views. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. For Sony too. Yeah. Yeah. I totally hear that. Um, visiting Alan Levinson's website is kind of like going into a time machine. <laughs> um, his his work definitely has that sort of that 90s vibe about it. But he had a portion of his website that caught my eye that was just recommendations and it's a section of his website literally with scanned uh letters that look like maybe they've been faxed because they're from like they're 
they're from like 1994, saying, Alan, you made me look so good in the photo. I can't believe how good I look. I loved working with you, yada, yada. And there's just tons of recommendations. And I just think that is the cutest thing. I'm not sure. You know, I I see that on photographers like about pages where they're like, here's a quote from one of my clients, but an entire recommendations gallery where you're scrolling through letters, hand notes, handwritten notes. I just thought that was really cute. The the letterhead is, is bomb. Yeah. You just, you don't get that anymore because everyone's sending emails and everyone's Gmail right. screenshot looks the same. To- right, totally into exactly. it as well. Uh, <laughs> the song is Plastic Love by the Japanese artist Maria Takeuchi and the photo is by Alan Levinson. Alan, we know that the best camera is the one with you. <laughs> and this pack... This past week, a photo went completely bananas on Twitter from a regular person, not a photographer, um, who took a striking photo of a storm cloud out in northwest Texas with her iPhone 11. Her name's Laura Rowe. Um, She's out in Littlefield, Texas. This photo looks like it could be taken from a a storm chaser professional, Um, but it was not just a regular person with their iPhone. It's phenomenal. And it went viral on Twitter. And so she immediately set up a, sorry for the shout out. She set up a smug mug. I wish she had set up a photo shelter, but she didn't. Uh, She set up a smug mug to sell a print of it. And um, it's just gorgeous. Did you see it? Yeah. You know, first of all, if you look at just the tweet and you look at the crop of the tweet, which is a horizontal crop, it does not do the photo justice. You have to click on the image to see this incredible vertical image because it looks like a blooming onion from whatever steakhouse has those blooming onions. Um, <laughs> Applebee's or something. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> it's it's a remarkable photo, and and you know my initial thought was like, this is Photoshop to hell. Yeah, and, yeah. And then you look at it some more, and it's <laughs> shot on iPhone 11. And I will say, you know, iPhone 11 does a little bit on the contrast boost and maybe a mm-hmm. little bit of vibrance or saturation boost to make the photos pop a little bit more. But mm-hmm. I think it's probably pretty damn close to what she was seeing with her naked eye. And she yeah. has a number of other images, you know, from a few minutes before and a few minutes after. Wow. Can you imagine yeah. seeing this in real life? Uh, I mean... I- I've been out in New Me- like in that area in New Mexico and, and you see some pretty phenomenal clouds, but this is unlike anything I've ever seen in real life. It's it's gorgeous. One of my first reactions was I wish a professional photographer was out there with their fancy Nikon yeah. Canon or Sony camera. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, Whatever, man, to your point, the best camera is the one you have with you. And if you ain't there to take it, you're not gonna get the photo anyway. So right time, right place, yep. right camera. Congratulations, Laura right. Rowe. Well, next week is Memorial Day. We are taking the week off. Got big plans, uh, Sarah G? Yeah, I'm going to go upstate, do a little cabin getaway. Excellent, no? excellent. I think I'm just going to lounge around and watch some bad movies or something. Ah, oh, sounds good too. But uh, we want to thank you for listening to the podcast this week. Since you're here, why don't you smash that subscribe button? You can always leave us a comment or a rating. We encourage you to tweet at us at Photoshelter if you have ideas or you just want to shoot the breeze with uh, Sarah or myself. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 
PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.